some will always have the title power. You know, they'll have a particular position in the world where they are more powerful. They get to do things in a particular way that has more impact on more people, good or bad. But for those of us that don't have that or are not aspiring for that level of power, we get to step into a form of power that honours who we are in our season of life, regardless of our background, our current season, what it is that we want for the future. Because when we realise that we all have the capacity to do something in a particular way, that gives us an energy that we can create power for other people. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Here's today's question. When you hear the word power, what springs to mind? Do you immediately think of its absence, the moments where you have felt power less? Or do you think about the moments where you showed up as the fullest, strongest version of yourself? Is power a word or sensation that even feels like it belongs to you? Or is it a word that usually belongs to somebody else? My guest today wants to redefine how we think, approach and own the word power in our lives. Kemi Nekvapil is one of Australia's leading coaches for executives and entrepreneurs. She describes her life's work as being to empower women to live and lead without apology. Kemi is a certified facilitator for Brene Brown's Dare to Lead program and also a facilitator for the Hunger Project Australia, which works with communities to enable them to realize a future free from hunger and poverty. She is also a highly sought-after international speaker and author who has just published her latest book, Power, A Woman's Guide to Living and Leading Without Apology. The book looks at how to navigate the inevitable challenges we all face from a place of unapologetic, and I'm going to say that again, unapologetic power in order to show up at the highest possible level. In this episode, we discuss the true meaning of the word power and how it's our definitions of the word rather than our own innate strength that keeps us small. What stops us from stepping into our power, including all the ways we give our power away in order to feel safe, accepted, and like we belong? The right questions to ask to reclaim your sense of power, in particular when faced with people and situations that would usually make us shrink. Why real power is often found in the quiet moments, the small decisions, the micro choices, rather than the big grand gestures. And finally, how to access your intuition and realize that the greatest power you have comes from outwardly and inwardly trusting your inner voice. For me, the word power has really shifted in meaning, particularly over the past few years. I think before... It always had this energy of pushing, building, creating, showing up, using your voice, changing what needs to be changed, forcing where necessary. And yet now, largely thanks to this podcast, that has fundamentally shifted for me. Now, when I think about the word power, when I embody it and when I witness it, the feeling isn't of push. The feeling is more of pull, of pulling to show up and hold yourself with such clarity, such intention, such integrity, such gravity, that the people and situations you need to move forward quite literally kind of feel like they are being pulled towards you. To me, that's real power. And I'll I'll let you decide what it means for you. For those of you who are ready to take your journey in influence to the next level, do not forget, hop on my website or the show notes 
and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven core areas and the seven key questions that I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your level of influence. Just pop in your email address and it will arrive in your inbox in the time it takes to whistle a tune. On that note, sit back, stride out, cycle on, caffeine up, vision open and enjoy the incredible Kemi Nekvapil. Welcome to the podcast, Kemi Nekvapil. How are you? I am absolutely delighted to be here with you, Julie. Thank you for having me on. I'm delighted that we that we could get you. I know you, you've had a book launch and a bunch of other things going on. So I'm going to kick off. Before we start diving into your world, I want to just ask you the question. It's the question I always ask first on the podcast. It's what's one idea that's having a lot of impact on your thinking right now that's really influencing the way that you approach the world or your choices. And I know for people who are in the ideas world and who have incredible ideas, they just tend to find them first. So tell me what's what's influencing you right now? Well, as you know, I listen to the podcast, so I am so excited to actually be listening and answering this question in real life and not just in my head in the kitchen. Um, I am always thinking about the power of delight. It is something that I believe in this fast paced world that we're told that we should live in. We miss these small moments of delight. I just had one. It was I'm here in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, and the way the sun was hitting an autumn leaf. And there are so many of these moments around us all the time, always in nature, but in other moments as well. The way we see an exchange between two strangers or the way that somebody smiles at somebody else. And so I'm always thinking about how conscious we have to be about introducing and seeking and acknowledging small moments of delight in our lives. Mm. I've been thinking a lot about the word wonder recently, how much wonder I allow into my life, how much wonder I provide for the people around me, how many moments of wonder and awe. Um, And so I love that idea of delight because it's a similar energy, you know, it's a how much do you let yourself be delighted Mm. by the things around you? Yeah. And you have to engage with some form of stillness for that to happen. You have to be observing your environment around you. You can't have your face looking down at a screen, which, you know, our screens could possibly bring us some forms of delight, but there's an energy of delight that's all around us that we are at risk of missing if we don't slow down. You also have to be present, which is a word I think, you know, it gets thrown around a lot. Are we present? Are we not present? But there is a tendency, right, to either be in the future, thinking about where you're going, what you have, what you don't have, where you need to be, where you're not, or in the past, which is thinking about the conversation that you just had and the thing that you just did. And I can definitely speak for myself that, you know, the moments when I stop and be fully in where exactly where I am now, Somebody said to me recently, um, do now what can only be done now. And that made me stop and look around and go, do now what can only, well, what can only be done now is, is looking around exactly where I am right now. So delight, I'm going to take that word. I'm going to take that word with me. Um, we're here to talk about power, which I know is a massive subject and a subject close to your heart. And I think interestingly, we're, our two worlds kind of collide in a way, in a, in a really fascinating way, because I spend a lot of my time with people who are trying to change things, trying to start movements, conversations, get ideas out there in the world. And you do the same, but from a, from a different angle. So, and I think this word power comes up a lot and I, I really want to dive into it with you, but I think we're better off starting with a definition. So when I've heard you ask the question, you know, when I say the word power, what do you think or feel? What's the usual response? What's the response you usually get back? I think one thing that's amazing is that people generally do have a somatic feeling, like there's a feeling. And for most people, it's a contraction. And the words that come back, so if I'm on stage speaking to an audience, I will sometimes ask them to shout out words. And it is 
um, dominance, greed, devious, pain, hurtful, scarce, basically not words that most of us want to be involved in <laughs> or most of us um, want to be perpetuating in the world. And then for me, sort of exploring this idea of power, I wanted to go back and look at what the word actually means, because there are people's assumptions about what it means. And there are also our lived experience of what power can be and the power that some or all of us have reached for. And the Oxford Dictionary definition of the word power is the ability or capacity to do something in a particular way. That's it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because the the word power for me also means agency mm-hmm. you know, to have power over something to mm-hmm. be able to do something about something but it's so fascinating that the definition that most of us have is this you know i know you talk about it as almost like an oppressive power mm-hmm. power over mm-hmm. someone else yeah a power i mean brene brown sort of coined this idea of power over this idea that of a power that is being done to us as opposed to power with or power to. So this idea that power is an abundant resource, that it's regenerative and that every single human being wants to and needs to have a sense of agency or power in their lives. Some will always have the title power. You know, they'll have a particular position in the world where they are more powerful. They get to do things in a particular way that has more impact on more people, good or bad. But for those of us that don't have that or are not aspiring for that level of power, we get to step into a form of power that honours who we are in our season of life, regardless of our background, our current season, what it is that we want for the future. Because when we realise that we all have the capacity to do something in a particular way, that gives us an energy that we can create power for other people. And this idea that, as you just said, power isn't a finite resource. It's not something that I have and therefore the only way you can get it is I have to give it to you. What what stops us? You know, what what stops us from accessing power and what keeps us feeling powerless? Well, as an executive and personal coach, if I was to ask that question, to a group of people, everyone would come back with a different answer. So I'm very mindful of not giving a generic answer of this is what some people experience and this is what other people don't experience. But there are so many reasons why we don't step into our power. There are so many reasons why we don't feel that we have agency in our lives. Some of them are completely, you know, I know you talk a lot about this idea of internal influence. What are we telling ourselves about ourselves? But we cannot ignore, especially when it comes to power, the systemic structures that we have to live with or that are done to us that give us a sense of powerlessness that is very real in the world and very true and so the reasons why some or all of us won't step into our own power is because we have been told or we have experienced it is not safe for us to do so so in some cases the idea of doing something in a particular way actually means giving our power away because we know that will keep us safe So what I talk about is this idea of power is a practice. We will give our power away in certain situations because it's safer for us to do that, depending on our identities. Power is something that can be taken from us and power is something that we can step into. So we're always in this dance between feeling it very strongly, losing it, feeling it strongly, losing it, feeling it strongly, losing it. And that, let's give a very simple example. That could be that you nail a presentation Um, that you're giving to an audience and you walk off the stage and you're like, nailed it, nailed that one. And then you have a call with your mum and you're just like, okay. (laughs) Did not nail that one. Did not nail that one. There goes my power, you know, regardless of your age, depending on your relationship. And so this idea that power is something that we move in and out of all the time. And for me and for the clients that I work with and the audiences that I speak to, That is what makes this concept of power more powerful. It's not that you have it or you don't have it. It's that we will all find ourselves in situations where we're in and out of it. How do we rebuild it and take ownership of it for ourselves? I really love that definition because I'm I'm just thinking about it now. You know, the the definition of power is is almost like a dance. Like you have it, Mm -hmm. you, you, you hand it 
to someone, you come back, you get, get like, you're constantly dancing with it as opposed to that definition of you either have or have not stepped into your power. And once you've stepped into your power, then from that moment on, you will be forever feeling mm. powerful in all situations, in all moments, which, you know, as an expectation is self-defeating just by itself. I mean, I have my power taken away regularly by a three-year-old. That's right. You know, I, yeah. I have teenagers 100%. <laughs> yeah. And this idea of it's a constant dance, you're, mm -hmm. you're in it, it moves. You So then the most powerful moment surely becomes the, the knowledge and the ability to be able to call it back in. And it can also be just being aware that we've lost it and who we become. I'd love to share the acronym that I created around power, because I think it gives more of a context for people listening. So the idea is that I wanted to redefine power and the way that more of us felt that we had agency and could experience power in the world as ourselves. You know, as you speak about this idea of influence, how do we be seen? How do we live and lead without apology? So I made the word power into an acronym, which is presence, which we've kind of covered off. Presence, ownership, wisdom, equality and responsibility. Now, presence, as you said, this idea of presence, I think sometimes we all get pictures of kind of people sitting in meadows with the wind blowing through their hair. If you have hair, I don't have hair. Um, that this is sign that the idea of presence is very serene. But I talk about presence is being present to what is and what is not working in your life. Now, that is not always serene. That can be incredibly confronting and very challenging because if we are caught up in this kind of hamster wheel of we have to keep going, we're not even present to what's going on in our lives, what's going on in our hearts, where we are in our relationships. Do we want the career that we have? Are we building the right thing? Are we spending time with the people that energize and, and enrich us? So for me, this idea of presence isn't this kind of very spiritual idea of mindfulness. It is also looking at I need to be present to what is going on. And then there's ownership. And I talk about this idea of owning our narratives the stories that we have been told, the stories that we've witnessed, those we've experienced, those we've made up and those that we have created. And what we want to do as human beings is integrate all of those stories. So not I'm only allowed to be in this space if I hide these parts of me or I am only a good human if, if people don't know about this part of me, that we can show up in spaces and places as 100 percent versions of ourselves. I just want to go back i'm going to go into each of these but i just mm -hmm. want to go back to presence mm. for a second you know you were talking about presence not being for me it's always white linen for some reason <laughs> always and there's always like grass in the meadows with, with kind of like daisy flowers and they're always blowing in the wind yeah i always i have no <laughs> idea who wears purely white linen but it's the people who are present right <laughs> that's right those ones yeah <laughs> those ones the mindful ones um but I, again, I love that definition that presence isn't um, serenity. Presence is being present to what is working and what is not working. And, and the question I have around that is in my experience, which may or may not be unique, that has always required space, which can be a luxury during certain chapters of your life, um, depending on, on your life and who's in it and what's going on. Does it require space do we need to stop everything and you know head off for 24 hours and sit on a mountain is it something that we can do in the moment it is 100 something we can do in the present moment because the question is and obviously as a coach questions are my favorite because they give power to the client the question is what is working in my life what is not working in my life that is as short as it gets in terms of going away for 24 hours or going on a retreat or any of those things, the reality is we have either experienced this or we know people in our lives that if we don't take the time to stop and we need to, our body will take us out. Happens all the time. Happens all the time. So being able to carve mindful present moments when and where you can is possibly going to mitigate being taken out for a longer period that wasn't at your own choosing. And I think also there's, there's a combination there as well, where asking it, like stopping in the moment, taking a breath, going, what's not working? Like, why am I 
responding in this way? What is not working here? And then often the acknowledgement of, of what's not working, as you said, it's, you know, acknowledging when you've lost the power, you can't fix it in that moment. Sometimes that takes space to go, okay, I know this isn't working. I'm flat out for the next week, day, whatever it happens to be. I know that I need to carve out some space to really sit with that. And how do I want it to be different and what needs to change? 100% awareness is powerful. The, we all have go-to responses. I, I believe, you know, when we, when we feel like we've lost our power and, and I heard you, I heard you say something that we adopt, we adopt unhelpful ways of living with powerlessness. What are, what are some of those unhelpful ways that we tend to adopt? Well, I can only speak for myself. So I am English born, Nigerian heritage, and I live here in Australia. So I'm a dark skinned black woman. And I grew up in the 1970s in the UK. And the systemic structures told me very, very clearly that I had no power. And I was very fortunate that some of the foster families that I live with, I had six primary carers growing up. Some of those families loved me very deeply and some not so much. But everywhere I looked and turned, I was only ever the only black person. And then I was a black girl, so add that intersectionality. So I didn't even think about power. I just knew I didn't have any of it. So one way that I learned very quickly, because as you said, we have behaviors. We need to work out how we survive in this world very quickly. And children are very smart. And I learned very on the message that many girls get which is be a good girl. And then I realized very early on, I had to be a good black girl. So the way that I made sure that I was, and I say in inverted commas, allowed to be in the spaces and places that I was in was to make sure that I didn't display any form of power, that I was completely out of my body, making sure that no one else around me felt uncomfortable. I made sure that I didn't rock the boat. Oh, add being English as well. So, you know, being mannered um, as well was incredibly important. I had to be extra mannered, extra mannered because I didn't want to be seen as a bad black person. So my sense of powerlessness, which I say I probably lived into for the first 20 years of my life, was very much navigating the world outside of my body so that I could appear in spaces and places where no one else looked like me. And I've also heard you said that you, during, during that period of time or a portion of it, you were proud to, to be following the rules. You, you were, oh, there was yeah. a sense of pride in doing that. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, um, I'm the eldest born from my family. Um, and I do need to give a little caveat as well, because I realize that when I don't fill in this part of the narrative, I don't, don't take ownership of this part of the story. People just fill it in. Um, so in the 1970s, middle-class Nigerian families fostered out their children to white families in the UK because of the colonial narrative that English education was best. And there were tens of thousands of Nigerian children that were fostered. And some of those kids, it did not go very well for them. And yes, I have wounds from those. I have trauma in the same way that many of us do, various ways. But I definitely am someone that came out of that in a way that I have been able to be with and be present with what worked about that and what didn't work about that. And yes, I'm the eldest born and I'm English. So I'm a rule follower and I like manners. So there was a part of me that felt proud that I was doing the right thing. There was a part of me that felt proud that the white people around me did not feel threatened by me in any way. It was kind of like, oh, I'm doing a real, well, there's that word again, I'm doing a really good job and they're going to let me stay. Mm. And I'm just, you know, this sense that there is power to be had, or maybe it isn't power, maybe it's just a sense of safety to be had in following the rules and defending the rules. That I, I have a place here. Mm -hmm. I can get some power yes. by being small, mm -hmm. following the rules. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a double blind. Yeah, in it's a like way. I'm doing power less really well. Look at me. <laughs> Look, look at me, approve of me, and maybe I will get some. Yeah. Um, let's go into, we're going to go backwards and forwards a little bit. Let, let's go into ownership. So, you know, you've said that ownership is integrating all of the stories that we have about ourselves. And, you know, I have noticed in, in my work, and I'm sure you've noticed in different ways, that a lot of the stories that we have about ourselves involve the word to. I just keep hearing this word come up, you know, I am too. 
loud. I am too quiet. I am too old. I am too young. I am too, you know, um, shy, experienced, inexperienced, big, small, like whatever it happens to be. There's a two in there somewhere. Where does that, where, where does that begin that we, we start to think that we are way too much of one thing and way not enough of another? Once again, I think it depends who we are, but I feel that how we add a sense of agency to that sentence is we just take the word to out and it doesn't become a judgment, it becomes a statement. And that is part of ownership to say, I am, maybe I am too old. I am this, I am. And to just say, that's who I am. And I remember I was quite young this is one of the little tasks that gave me a little bit of power. I think I was maybe, I don't know, mid-teens. And somebody said to me, do you know that not everyone else thinks like you? And I remember just thinking, really? <laughs> really? Don't they? But the sense of freedom then, and that was followed by, and not everyone else, and not everyone will like you. Now, I already knew that. I had experienced that as a black person navigating white spaces. But... Someone saying that to me, I just remember feeling this sense of relief. And maybe that was the beginning of me starting to think, you're spending a lot of energy trying to make people around you like you. What if you let go of that? What energy would you then have for yourself to explore other things? That's interesting. The, the idea of being liked and how much energy, how much energy we put in it and how much of our power we give away when we we judge our right to be in a space or a place or a situation by whether anybody is happy that we are there or not. What's the, let's just, let's flip that for a second and just play with it. What, because I know, I'll give you an example, just because, you know, a lot of this is, as you said, it's somatic, like I can feel it. I know what it looks like. I was in a meeting a couple of weeks ago with somebody who's at the very top of their game, like an expert, very top of their game, highly regarded, I was talking to her about a particular project and she came into the meeting and she said, I just want you to know that I, um, I'm, I'm quite shy and I can look quite flustered at times. I'm just thinking. And I just wanted to say that up front just so that, you know, we didn't have any kind of misunderstandings through this conversation. And it took me aback and I just thought that is incredible, like to own yourself to that degree to own your impression to that degree to go this is something about me and i'm totally fine with it and if we're going to work together you're going to need to be totally fine with it too quite an interesting way to kick off a relationship well i want to ask you and what did that make you think about her i it was a sense of i'm just feeling into it it was a sense of relief i think a massive sense of relief because I was like, okay, A, it told me a lot of things in, in a moment. A, she knows herself well, like she has self-mastery. For someone to know themselves that well and to be that good with, I'm, I'm a master in my space and it doesn't have to look, I've been doing this long enough, it doesn't have to look how you think it needs to look. So there was that, there was the confidence piece of speaking up, there was the using of voice, advocating, um, and also just a sense of relief that if this conversation does feel different that's just part of her process and she knows what she's doing yeah and there's something so generous about her sharing herself with you you know when I hear that story one thing that is that resonates very strongly to me is her saying to you here I am as a human let's do this as humans mm. yeah and maybe that's also part of the sense of relief mm. because if somebody gets to take up space yeah then you know it is permission to take up space there's actually um incredible singer lauren hill i don't know if you know her work i but do she... i love okay. i was just listening to her the other day actually. oh really okay yep. so in her album mtv unplugged which i i'm just plugging that for anyone that likes to listen to a good bit of r&b she actually says i wish everyone would just walk around with their stomachs out because then you can just go oh there's you've got one too and the sense of relief if everyone just stopped holding their abs and holding their stomach in i feel the same about our humanity if we could just say here I am and I'm shy here I am and I'm confused here I am and I don't know what I'm doing here I am and I feel like everything is falling apart and the opposite of that here I am and I'm thriving here I am and I'm celebrating because that can be as vulnerable 
in certain cultures and places as it is to say things in life are not working. Like you being England or being Australia and say things are going well, not necessarily going to be received that well. In the US, and it's one thing that I admire about the US culture, is you are allowed to say, I am good at this. And people are allowed to celebrate themselves and celebrate each other. So power shows up in different ways depending on who you are, where you are, and the reasons that you step into it and the reason that you step out of it. The Something else you said, so it's about owning our stories. We talked about owning our stories, you know, the twos that we have, being able to own a part of ourselves and know that it doesn't diminish or neutralize any other parts. Mm-hmm. Like I can still be an incredibly fierce leader and be vulnerable and compassionate. I can yeah. still be um, a master in my space and sit here and go in this particular moment, in this particular situation, I am clueless as to what we're, as to what's going <laughs> No idea that. what is going yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> I got no idea. But you know what? I'm not moving until, you know, we, yeah. we figure it out. And I, I've walked this path many times before and I know that we're going to hit points where we feel clueless and it yeah. is part of it. Yeah. Um, but you said something which I, I would love to explore because I, I didn't really understand it and I would love to. You said taking ownership of what gives us solace, which to me, yeah, I I hadn't, I had never asked myself that question. I'd love to know what that means for you. Mm. Well, I'm speaking very much through the lens of an introvert. So I know that I am the best person for the people that I care about and for my clients when I have given myself a lot of solace. So, and this came clear to me, one, when I read the incredible book, Quiet, by Susan Cain. And I read that book when my husband and I took our two children out of school. They were nine and 11. And we went around Australia in a caravan for 387 days. I just, uh, can I just mention that was probably not the right book to read when you got a complete <laughs> it was the, Exactly. It was perfect. As an avid reader, I know that I pick up the books at the perfect time. So let me share with you what happened. So the first week, we're in the caravan and my husband is playing around with the kids and they're screaming and they're having fun. And I put my head in my hands and I was literally 351 days to go. Like, I was just like, this was a bad idea. It was shortly after that I picked up the book. And understood my introversion and understood why being away from people was so important. And that allowed me to take ownership and power around what I need so that I can show up to my family, to my friends and to myself and to the people that I impact in the world in a way that is authentic to me and where I am fueled and where I want to be present where I am. So that for me is the power of solace and also taking ownership of that's what I need. Mm. And I also love that word fueled. Like taking ownership, power is to take ownership of what fuels you yeah. and your responsibility. And this is something that I try and think a lot about as a parent and to varying degrees of success and non-success, um, that my responsibility is to show up as full as I possibly can. And that, and what I love about that word fuel and full is it looks so different Mm. to everybody, Mm. you know, for one person to feel full, they're a full-time stay at home parent. And that's what makes them feel full to somebody else. It's working to somebody else. It's silence to somebody else. It's fun or laughter, Mm. you know, whatever it, it takes to take responsibility, fulfilling yourself then that's, that's a powerful place to come from. And we know when we meet these people, right? Like I'm always kind of blown away when I meet these people who take a hundred percent responsibility for keeping themselves full. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the people who go, actually, you know, I really need, um, I really need half an hour just, yeah. just, you know, to integrate and to just be still. And then I'll meet you all in half an hour. And I always kind of, again, it's like white linen to me. I'm like, <laughs> Are these people like unicorns? Yeah, but it's again, you know, it's the it's the the courage transfer that we Mm. never know. We Mm. never know where the courage that we show where it transfers. And in that moment, when you hear someone, when I hear someone say it, it's there's a moment of oh, that's what that sounds like. Mm. That's what that looks like. That those are the words. I can I can take that. Mm. 
Mm. And it's so, for me, I just, I'm so excited by people that know who they are and what they need. And I'm excited by people that don't know and they're willing to say, I don't know what I need or I don't know who I am at this stage of life. And I don't know what I want, but I'm willing to do the work to find out what it is because the other side of that is, and I'm in midlife now. And one of the questions that I use to filter is, will I regret this on my deathbed? You know, um, will I regret this opportunity? And to be honest, you know, there's a lot of I get a lot of incoming. And the answer is generally no. You know, it's like, no, I won't regret this on my deathbed. And there are other things that it's a very much a full body. Yes. Um, and so we can orientate our lives towards those things that we know honour who we are and honour our power in the world. And it's a practice. This is a thing. It is a practice. The unicorns in the white linen. They have practiced and they've had difficult conversations with people and they've had to let some people go and they have been let go of. And there's something that is so beautiful about us understanding as humans that not everyone can come with us and that we will not be taken on the full journey with everybody. Once again, there's a level of power there because it gives you freedom. It's like, can I just take ownership of this person is in my life for this period of time and they're here to give me what I need and vice versa. It could be, you know, I don't know, I'm just making this up. I don't know when I last went to a wedding, but you go to a wedding and you just meet someone and you just really vibe with them and you're dancing on the floor all night. Now, if you can just be in your power and just go, this is and being present to, this is exactly what it is. It doesn't have to be more that I met a stranger and we danced. And I'm not talking intimate at all. I'm just talking, you just met another crazy person that wanted to dance all night. But you can lose your power if you then start chasing that from that person. As opposed to going, that was a great night on the dance floor. You know, and we have that in all different areas of our lives where if we can just be present and take ownership of this is what it is. It is no more. It is no less. Then what do I get to do with that? And to do that, to say this is what it is and it is no more and it is no less takes coming from a full tank. It takes not looking at somebody and going, you feel something in me that I have not been able mm. to, to film myself. To give to myself. Yeah. The, um, you remind my, my husband who he's, he's a little bit white linen, which has now just become a verb. <laughs> um, he's, I remember when we first met, so you're talking nearly 20 years ago and we were dating and he is, he is very much an introvert and owns his, his introvertism. And I remember him saying to me, I need, um, I need one night a week where I don't see anyone and I don't see you and I don't have to do anything and I don't have to tell anybody where I am. And I just need one night a week. That's my night. And yep. I remember laughing. <laughs> that's why I you've been married laughing. for 20. That's why you've been married for 20 years. <laughs> because it was in my late twenties and I was like, dude, I don't, I don't care where you go. Like, <laughs> like I don't need to see you every night. You don't have to tell me where you are. Like have every night. I don't mind. And, you know, there's, there's a lightness in your twenties to that question, but you know, when you do life together and you have small children and a thousand things going on and he has stayed true mm -hmm. to Thursday mm -hmm. nights for 20 years. Yeah. Our friends laugh about it. Every, all of our friends know Josh Knight. Yeah. Oh, that's Josh Knight, isn't yeah. it? There you go. And he will, it doesn't matter if he goes to the movies by himself or he goes and sits in a cafe and today is Thursday and mm -hmm. today night will be Josh Knight, mm -hmm. but he owns that so solidly. Yeah for himself. And I've, you know, probably tried to cross that line before where it's like, do you need to do it this week? <laughs> could it be when could it be Wednesday this week? Yeah, it's funny. I feel like there must be an introversion thing on, on Thursdays because Thursday night is my night too. Although I have more, let's be honest, I actually have more than one. I have older children, so it's very different now. But I think is what you're speaking about there and, you know, him being able to take ownership. This is what I talk about with the third power principle, which is wisdom. So often we outsource this internal wisdom that we all have. We may not be, now this, this is the distinction I want to make. We all have it, but we may not be in communication with it or we may not trust it, but we have an internal wisdom that generally will guide us in the right direction at the right time. I have only not followed my wisdom once and I remember the outcome being so bad that I was like, okay, don't do that again. Like you knew, you knew not to do that thing and you did it against everything that you were telling yourself and so don't do that again but 
we live in a society, especially when it comes to personal and professional development, where we believe that our wisdom is outside of us, that somebody else, a guru, a teacher, somebody else, they have the ultimate answer for how we should live our lives. And that is why I love the pure form of coaching, because I don't give advice to my clients. That is disempowering. The only time I give advice is if somebody actually asks me for advice. And generally, I won't even give it to them because I know that I want them to walk away with the sense that they had the answer within them and not outsource it to me. And it doesn't mean that listening to our wisdom doesn't mean that we make mistakes. Sometimes listening to our wisdom means that we do make mistakes, but then it gives us another level of wisdom for the next time we have to make a decision or the next time we find ourselves in a similar situation. Mm. I know I, I have definitely noticed that the leaders that I respect, the ones that make changes, the ones that go out there, the ones that last, the ones that other people look up to, they are without exception, incredibly good at following their intuition, at following that inner, that inner voice and taking advice and pulling in information, mm -hmm. but not, but judging it against. Yes. Yes. The voice. Does that resonate with what I'm already feeling? Yeah. Does Sorry. that resonate with what I already felt was the thing to do? Um, and it is, I speak about, you know, integration, like integrating the mind, the heart and the gut and the intuition. None of those thinking senses are better than the other. We have, but we have three of them. Why not use them? You know, sometimes it's very clear it's like, oh, my gut says to do that or not to do that. But sometimes we have to go, well, what does my heart feel about that? Or, okay, so my heart and my gut are saying these things. What do I know? What is my thinking? What is my cognitive experience telling me about this decision? And then if we can integrate all of those three thinking senses, we are more likely to be able to be in our power in the way that we navigate the world. And also owning it as well. Mm -hmm. You know, going back to the second one, which is ownership, mm -hmm. the, the, the second pillar of power, which is, you know, when you have an intuition, owning it, yeah. voicing it. Yeah. You know, I have, and mm -hmm. I've seen this a lot of times in boardrooms where you can see, you could just tell by the way someone sat, they kind of squirm a little when mm -hmm. they've got like this intuition that this isn't the right way or something's not quite feeling right. And don't voice it mm. as opposed to those who go something about this doesn't quite feel right to me yeah actually I have a um a boardroom story with a client that I once worked with she worked with one of the top four banks um here in Australia and she was the only female um executive out of nine and they were all sat around a table she was the one woman um eight men and we worked together for quite a while you know the beginning was getting her to a point where she knew that she was worthy to be in that room. Then it was like getting in the room and sitting at the table. And then when she sat at the table, realized she'd lost her power and lost her voice. And, but eventually she was running a team offsite and she said, Oh, I've got, you know, one of the guys is really pushing me on how I should do this offsite. He's been running them for a certain amount of years and this is how I should do it. And this is when there should be the break and this is how it should happen. And I said to her, I said, okay, great. You know, he's, he's run them. They've been successful. What does your, intuition tell you about how you want to run the offsite. So let's just take out timings or the people in the room. What are you telling yourself? And she said, I want to write a love letter to my team. And I said, how would that be for you to do that? And she said, it would be terrifying. And I said, well, <laughs> unfortunately for her, we got to the point in the session where it was where she could commit to action. So I asked her, is this an action that you'd like to commit to? And so we met a couple of weeks later and she said, I've decided that, yes, I'm going to. The offsite was that following weekend. She sent me an email on the Monday. She said, not only did I write the love letter to my team, but this colleague who I felt the pressure from came up to me in tears and said, I have never felt anything that strongly in an offsite before. You have taught me so much about leadership. And that's the power of intuition. Yeah. Because... I don't know, for me, intuition, it just comes in from so many different angles. Mm. You know, it feeds, it, it comes in through parts of your body, not, not your brain. Yeah, like it, it doesn't you can come almost in. almost feel it. No, yeah. it comes in through the threads that you have attached to things and people and situations that you, that you have care mm. around. Mm. Something very um, intangible and exacting about it. Yeah. 
Talk to me about a man you met in a pub. <laughs> it is the right intuition. That is great. Okay, I will talk to you about the man I met in a pub. Um, so the man I met in the pub, I um, actually at that point, I was working as an actor and I was successful as an actor. I very much enjoyed the career and I was with the Royal Shakespeare Company and I was in New York and I had a conversation with a fellow actor and she said to me, I'm so excited to be here in New York with the Royal Shakespeare Company. You know, my dream is to play Lady Macbeth when I'm 40. And we were in our early 20s. And I remember looking at her and I thought two things. One, I really hope that for you, like I really want that for you. And the second thing I thought was, well, I'm black and they're not going to cast a black Lady Macbeth at the Royal Shakespeare Company anytime soon. That has changed, but at that time. And I also thought, and that's not why I'm here. I'm not here to play Lady Macbeth when I'm 40. And I don't know why I'm here. And that kind of led me a bit of a searching for me with the childhood that I'd had. The fact that I got to act and have this dream career was so out of what I knew I was allowed to do or be in the world. So the thought that I suddenly didn't want this was a real moment of tension for me. And my inner narrative was, who do you think you are? Why are you so ungrateful? You do not get to not do this. And then I shared it with a very dear friend of mine. And she said, so what do you want to do? And I said, oh, I just want to. I just want to travel the world. I'd, I'd trained as a baker when I'd left school and I'd chefed a lot and I was do, I'd really started my yoga practice. I've been practicing yoga now for 28 years. And I said to her, I don't, there's not even a job. It's not even a name. What I want to do though, is I want to chef and teach yoga around the world. That was the end of the conversation. A few days later, she comes into me where I was working in a cafe and she says, I've just met this guy. He owns a resort in Thailand and he's looking for a chef. And I think it's you meet him in the pub tonight. And I was like, of course, I will go and meet this strange guy in the pub. We met within 15 minutes of conversing. He said, you have the role if you want. He said the fact that you have already been in the TV world, it's a kind of a high end resort. There's going to be a lot of celebrities there. You won't be phased by that world and you can cook. So do you want to come and do this job? And I said, yes. He said one thing. There's no pay but I can give you accommodation. And I was like, oh, that sounds fantastic. Having that conversation with my parents was not great. Um, I'm going to Thailand to work at the resort for a man that I met in a pub for no pay. Um, and I went to Thailand. The man turned out to actually be, he didn't do anything to me or anything like that. He was just not a pleasant person. But I met my husband on that trip. And we've been married for 20 years. And that was a full gut instinct that I knew I had to go to Thailand just because the actual opportunity seemed like an adventure but now I look back and it's very clear why I had to go it wasn't about the money wasn't about him being a nice guy it was putting me in connection with the man that was going to be my life partner mm. and there is no rationality in that which is hard and you know it's hard when it's you <clears throat> it's hard when it's someone you love mm. when they're making a big call it's mm. hard when you're in a boardroom it's hard when you have a business mm. to make a call that is on instinct and intuition alone and that you you cannot back up with anything tangible but that you feel with every cell that's 100 percent. that's right and i think for me because of the man that i met and i think this is a beautiful segue into equality is that i met and married a cisgendered middle-class anglo christian able-bodied white man so now we have this partnership and this relationship where we have been told very different things about how we're allowed to be in the world. And I can honestly say that one of the biggest gifts that we have given each other, and my husband would laugh about this, is that I have taught him that not everyone wants to hear his voice. And he has taught me that I'm allowed to be in the world as myself. And we have two biracial children. Our youngest is non-binary. And it has been such a joy and a delight and a challenge to look at what equality looks like within our marriage. And when I talk about equality as the power principle it, within the book, I talk about global inequality 100%. And I am sure that most of the listeners to this podcast are already contributing to global inequalities in whatever way resonates to them, in whatever way is important to them. 
but I'm talking about the sense of equality that we have inside each of us. You know, I've had the incredible privilege of being a lead facilitator for the Hunger Project for over a decade now, which means that I take Australian business owners at this point, it's different countries have different, but I'm in Australia, Australian business owners to countries such as Uganda, where we work with village partners to look at what does leadership look like in a rural village? And what are the resources, their internal resources that they have to get themselves out of poverty? And I've also had the pleasure of facilitating on Necker Island um, with Richard Branson, talking about being 100% human at work. Now, when I stand with village leaders in Uganda, or if I'm standing on Necker Island, Richard Branson has very different resources from those village leaders in Uganda, but their equality in their humanity, there is no difference. And yet so many of us have had to navigate the world thinking that we are less than other people. And so when I talk about equality, yes, it is about global inequality, but it's also about, and it is a practice for some of us, the practice of we are allowed to be in the world no matter how we identify. And something I'll share with you, I heard someone the other day, his name is, I'm sorry, their name is Alok, and they say, People are not scared of trans people because of how they look. People are scared of trans people because they unapologetically show up 100% as themselves in the world. And that is scary to people. And I just remember hearing that and thinking, that is incredibly powerful. That is incredibly powerful to know that there are these people that are leading the way of what it looks like to stand in the world when their physical safety is so threatened and yet they decide I will be here and I will be seen and I will live a full expression of myself and I will stand in my power regardless of any structures that try and take that power away from me, I will be seen and I will be allowed. That is inner equality. And again, I, I just want to I want to point out the, the change in definition there because it's one of the most beautiful things I'm taking and powerful things I'm taking from your work is you redefining some of these words you know the this idea of equality that we we want to work on our equality yes we need to work on equality in on in the world and inequality in the world but it starts here like it starts with how equal do I feel mm -hmm. how much do I feel like I deserve to take up space how much do yeah. I feel like am I, I am allowed to show up a hundred percent expression yeah full technicolor expression of myself mm -hmm. and in doing that we would probably have more of a ripple effect mm -hmm. on the inequality in the world 100 just by simply all of us showing up and giving others permission yes and the caveat is is that we all know that is not easy showing up in our yeah. families whether it's our nuclear families our families of origin whether it's in communities whether it's in the boardroom whether it's on the factory floor none of this is easy but it is a sustainable practice of power because as we spoke about at the beginning we step in and out of it we always will while we're alive and so the more that we step into it and we surround ourselves with people that can tell when we're out of it and they will step in for us is also a form of power and the final power principle is responsibility which you've touched on because for me oh that is the defining word of professional and personal development is responsibility and it is one of the gifts of me being a foster child and having those six primary carers growing up is that i knew for a fact that no one was coming to save me and as a child when i would read fairy stories fairy tale stories there were no princesses that looked like me so I knew that there was no prince coming to get me. Now, taking responsibility for our lives is a little bit like presence. It is not pretty, always. It is not easy, but it is the ultimate form of power. It's not about saying, this didn't happen to me. It's not about saying, this is not a challenging, hard time. It's just saying, I have responsibility in my life. What do I get to do with it? Now, obviously, I just want to preface I'm not talking about any form of abuse at all that is a whole different dynamic that's created there I'm talking about being able to take agency in your life and knowing that no one is coming to save you you can ask for support we must ask for support we're social beings we can't do anything on our own really you know we must ask we must be vulnerable but ultimately we have to be responsible enough to say I need help and I need support and bringing those 
five power principles together, presence, ownership, wisdom, equality and responsibility is a framework that we can try on and that we can play with and ultimately we can practice. Mm. And with responsibility as well, the, the, the idea that we, responsibility is choice. Mm -hmm. It's knowing that we are capable of choosing. Mm -hmm. and, and I remember someone saying this to me in a workshop once, and you know, when you hear something that's so true, it almost makes you angry. <laughs> so, so it's so true. And I hate it. She, um, she said to me, she's like, you do realize that by not making a choice, you are still making the choice. Mm -hmm. You are still choosing. Yeah. And it was so true. It kind of made me angry. Yeah. And there's another one as well. If you'd like a little bit more, if you'd like to get a little bit more angry, if it resonates oh, sure. with you. Maybe angry. <laughs> another one is you don't have to like the choices. They don't have to be great choices. They're not necessarily binary choices. Like this is a great choice, this is a bad choice. They can both be really hard choices to make. They can be very gray. You can hardly discern one choice from the other. But our power comes from a sense of, well, at least I get to choose something in this situation. Yeah. I am. I always love the definition of the word responsible, which is ability to respond. I don't mm -hmm. know if it's the official definition or not, but to be, to take responsibility is to own the fact that I have, I may not like my choices. I may not mm -hmm. like the situation I have found myself in, but I have an ability to respond. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to respond now. And I may not have to respond to that particular person. And I don't have the right response. You know, there are so many ways of responding, you know, and not reacting. You know, I talk a lot about the difference between responding and reacting. Responding generally takes time because as you've mentioned earlier, we get hooked and we get triggered by things. And sometimes we just need to take the time to be present to what is going, why have I, why am I feeling like this about what they said or this person or being in this room? And we give ourselves the time to them respond in a way that honors the way that we want to be in a world and in a way that keeps us in our grounded power. Mm. I want to just, I wish we had so much more time to, to dive in and, you know, maybe there's a, there's a part two in here, but I want to just ask you a question. You had, um, you said something, I think it was in the Ted talk that you did and you said, we are creating a new world where we must take up space. Um, and I wholeheartedly felt that and, and know that to be true, you know, where we must use our voices, where we must make the changes that we're capable of making, where we must stand up and be seen and even, however big or small. Um, what's one thing for somebody who is feeling powerless in a particular part of their lives right now, be that in a lot of areas or one very particular area? What's one thing that they can do right now to start to reverse that, to dance back into power? The one, it would be a question, you know, I believe in self-coaching. Not everyone has access to coaching. So I really believe in self-coaching as a very powerful tool. I would be inviting people to ask themselves the question, first of all, why do I feel powerless in this situation? Just to become aware of why. And there may not be an action to take straight away. It may just be sitting in the uncomfortable feeling of why you're feeling powerless and then see what reveals itself. Because there may be a very clear action to take. It could be having a conversation with someone. It may be removing yourself from a situation. It may be setting a boundary or resetting a boundary. It may be making sure that you're, you speak and that you use your voice. But definitely the first question is, why do I feel powerless? The second question I'd say, looking at this idea of, you know, our body tells us things, is to really clock how it feels in your body so that the next time you feel that, you know exactly what it is. And the awareness and the presence comes in first before you react. You're like, oh, oh, I know that feeling. That's the feeling of powerlessness. And then you can move yourself away if you need to so that you can respond in a way that has you step back into your power. Kemi, thank you so much for your time and for your work and for all the, the elegant um, flips on, on words that even for me, I've got a whole new take on now. Thank you. Thank you so much, Julie. It's been a delight to speak with you. 
Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.